This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. Hello there and welcome to Me, Myself and Disaster, the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Today on the show, we're not talking about natural disasters because there's no such thing. In fact, we're off to the UK to speak with the founder of the hashtag No Natural Disasters Twitter campaign. If you've listened in previous weeks, we spoke with Amanda Lamont about the perception of risk in communities and the belief that these disasters we are witnessing are something naturally occurring. Andrew, it's looking like another great show. Tell us more about what our listeners can expect today. Yes, Josh, another great show coming up today. We're talking with Kevin Blanchard. He's a researcher in disaster risk reduction and has worked across the disaster risk reduction, international development and climate change related sectors. We're going to explore why there's no such thing as a natural disaster, talk about gender and vulnerability, discuss the impact of coronavirus on our understanding of the disaster management cycle and talk about some of the practical things that we can do to change our approach to thinking about disaster risk reduction. Sounds like there's going to be a lot to get through. So let's get into another week of me, myself and disaster and head over to the UK. Kevin Blanchard, welcome to the show. Let's start with the obvious first question. Why is there no such thing as a natural disaster? Uh, well, firstly, thank you very much for, for inviting me to, to talk about this. It's uh, really exciting. Um, I'm always happy to, to kind of share the no natural disasters message around the world. So uh, thank you again. Um, I think it really comes down to definitions. And if you look at the definition of a disaster, or the most widely recognized definition of a disaster, it talks about a sudden calamitous event that seriously disrupts the functioning of a community or society. So if you think about that kind of that well-known equation as well in terms of disaster, disaster equals hazard times vulnerability. All of these things come together to really make it very, very clear that actually you need to have a level of vulnerability. You need to have humans involved in that equation for a hazard to become a disaster. So a bushfire in the middle of Australia in a very, very sparsely uh, populated region won't be a disaster. It's, it's a hazard, of course, yes, and it's an event that happens, but it's not a disaster under the under the um, the definition that's been agreed by almost all disaster risk reduction practitioners and policymakers. So, really, um, when you talk about natural disaster, what you're saying is um, that actually it's a natural process. Um, there's a, a a kind of a level of um, uh, it's out of our control. The reason this disaster happens is because, yes, there's been a hazard, but actually our planning decisions, our policy decisions, our economic decisions, our cultural decisions, the decisions that we as a society and humans make have formed that disaster and formed that hazard into, into a disaster. So without us, there wouldn't be a disaster. Um, and a lot of the, the kind of the literature and the, and the kind of the, the background to this campaign is trying to get people to understand that actually, you know, a disaster and a hazard are very, very different things. And 
as such, there's no such thing as a natural disaster because really it does need human involvement to make a disaster. So there's nothing natural about it. This is a really interesting topic, and it's and it's a concept that many in our sector may not be familiar with, uh, and continue to use the term natural disaster, and and that's evident within Australia. We currently have a royal commission that is uh, that is titled um, uh, into uh, uh, investigation into natural disasters. So even at our highest policy making level, uh, this term is still being used. I'd be really interested to hear from you, Kevin. How did you come to be involved in disasters and the disaster landscape? And what prompted you to start the hashtag No Natural Disasters campaign? Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, Australia is not alone in, in its kind of, you know, its, its uppermost levels using the term natural disaster are um, the UK's uh, Department for International Development, which deals with um, disasters happening overseas regularly uses that that phrase. Um, USAID, you know, one of the largest um, international development organisations in the world, continues to use it. The World Bank continue. You know, there are lots and lots of organisations out there who continue to use the phrase natural disaster. So, Australia isn't alone in that, um, which is why this campaign is so important. But so that so kind of my background and, and how I got involved with this was really. Um, I'd been working on uh, kind of climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, and obviously those things are very, very closely linked with uh, disastrous production. Um, it seemed like kind of a natural progression to move into the disaster risk reduction and, and sometimes humanitarian fields. Um, and my first involvement with the, the No Natural Disasters campaign was actually reading an article um, back in 2017, I think, talking about the, the kind of the basics of um, why there's no such thing as a natural disaster. It really got me thinking because I, you know, I'm happy to hand, um, hold my hands up and, and admit that I've used the term natural disaster in my previous work. Um, not since 2017, I'll add, but before that, certainly. Um, and it, it really kind of resonated with me. I thought, actually, this makes perfect sense. You know, it's, it's really not a natural process. These are decisions that we're taking that's leading to the disaster occurring in these towns and cities and other places where humans live. Um, so it, it kind of, it, it, although there was a lots and lots of um, kind of debate out there, people have been discussing this as an issue since um, the 1700s. There, there seemed to be kind of this this disconnect between what was being said, the terms that were being used, etc. And I thought, actually, you know, social media as a platform, although it's got many, many kind of downfalls, actually, one of the good things it does is really kind of uh, enables us to bring all these different strands together and actually to maintain this kind of single path um, process. And so I set up uh, the No Natural Disasters Twitter accounts um, and kind of tried to influence the discussion with this hashtag, hashtag No Natural Disasters, so that anyone talking about this or anyone describing, you know, a, a disaster and why that's not natural can use this. So actually you can start to see there's this groundswell of, of movements and of kind of, um, you know, people really getting behind the message because they're all using this this single hashtag. Um, and actually, I think what that's done um, is it, it, is to really kind of focus people's attention um, and enable us as a community, a no natural disasters community, to really see how far and wide we 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 kind of cover. Um, we work in all different types of areas, all different uh, kind of types of organisations, civil service. And private sector, etc. Um, so it was really kind of it was uh, 
you know, a very kind of obvious uh, but needed move to, to kind of move this online. And that's, you know, that's just one of the things that I was able to hopefully facilitate and, and, and bring forward. I think that was a really interesting point that you brought up that this conversation has been going on since the 1700s. And I know there was it, it was made quite popular or mainstream through O'Keefe and his research uh, around these these terminologies. Why has it taken so long for the disaster landscape, for disaster risk reduction or policymakers to start having this conversation at, at that higher level? Why, why have we taken so long to have this conversation till now if it's been a term since the 1700s and it's been a conversation well through the 1970s, 1980s that was brought up constantly? Why, why so long? I think there's, there's a reluctance there to adopt or to drop the natural from natural disasters. I think um, particularly if you look at how mainstream media reports on these events globally it's a it's a, an established phrase um, with the public. It's certainly one that's very very recognised, um, and I think there's always that kind of really slow process between something that academia. And I'm not suggesting that I'm in academia at all, but kind of I sit within that, or, or, or many of my colleagues are within that kind of academic. Uh, field, I think it takes a long time to get from that place to a place where actually it's generally accepted within the in the public. Um, and the, the kind of the chunk that's missing there is is the mainstream media, and actually trying to get them on board and understand. Well, this isn't natural. This is a this is a human made process that's happening. Um, has been a, it's been difficult, and I think you know this campaign. Although we've had some successes, you know we've had articles in CNN and The Atlantic and um, BBC, you know, they've done some some good pieces. But although they've written these pieces saying why disasters aren't natural, they then a week later when the next event happens, go back to using the term natural disaster. So it's kind of really frustrating. But that I think that gives a good, uh, you know, a good sight of why this is taking such a long time until we can get everyone on board and until we actually um, can start making mainstream media understand the processes behind why disasters occur. Um, then, you know, we'll always be stuck with that term. Let's let's talk about a local example now to Australia. We had a pretty tragic start to the year. Um, significant areas in New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria burnt by bushfire. Um, we had thousands of residential properties lost. At the time, you tweeted an infographic about the bushfires. Can you explain to our listeners why, when referring to this particular event, we shouldn't be using the phrase natural disasters? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's really important that, uh, you know, we say right at the very beginning that when we are challenging these terms, we're not trying to minimise in any way, shape or form the loss and the hurt and the devastation that's been caused. Absolutely not. We, you know, people who um, try to kind of promote the, the no natural disasters idea aren't in any way saying that, you know, this diminishes the kind of the, 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 the impacts of a disaster. Absolutely not. In actual fact, what we're trying to say is the opposite. So, you know, from, from the Australian bushfire example, I think... Um, it, it, to us anyway, to, the, to those people who advocate for a no natural disasters message, it's very clear that actually there were a number of aspects to this particular hazard and how that turned into a disaster that were foreseeable. So you only need to look at Australia's history and Australia's climate to understand that bushfires are a very, very frequent event. Now, the scale and the intensity of, of um, you know, the 2019-2020s event absolutely was um you know much larger than most um 
But the basics behind that hazard turning into a disaster hadn't changed. That you know there'd been bushfires throughout the centuries. You know, indigenous populations had had you know recorded bushfires thousands of years back. And what the kind of the the idea why we shouldn't be using natural disasters because we knew this was going to happen and we we had the chance and we had the the opportunities to make planning decisions to make economic decisions to make those policy decisions to actually lessen the impact of the hazard so we could have or the australian government or local authority could have made changes to its planning decisions based on where houses were built they could have um made sure that houses were separated by x number of meters they could have ensured that the tree line was cut back away from houses um they had many options that could have been implemented before this event um that would have let it pass off the fire when it reached these inhabited areas and i think the big kind of um the, the big question mark almost that hangs over all of these decisions is the investments you know people um want a, a, a good return on their investment absolutely and uh, you know i get that but actually if they were to have invested a tiny bit more money or kind of invested a bit more time in terms of planning the developments and planning where they were building these houses then they could have mitigated some of those losses and some of those risks um, that they faced earlier this year so absolutely when it comes down to using the term natural disaster um with specific regard to the Australian bushfires, we have real difficulty saying that there was anything natural about this process apart from the hazard. So I'd love to delve a little bit deeper now into this conversation with you, Kevin. Um, We know post-disasters, there's a lot of people in the community, sometimes in government, who, you know, have this opinion that, oh, some, some, some victims, they should have been very prepared or they should have purchased insurances. However, we know that sometimes due to a range of circumstances, those people impacted by disasters were already probably vulnerable and didn't have the means to prepare to the same level as others in the community. And there's real, there's often this phrase around, you know, disasters, are social issues coming to a head. So I'd love to hear from your point of view, why do disasters amplify these social needs and these social issues during a disaster? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we think about the def- the definition that I mentioned earlier in this podcast about, you know, disasters are a, a calamitous and a sudden impact on society. And we also look at that, that equation I mentioned, disasters equals um, hazard times vulnerability. You know, vulnerability is really the kind of the core concept here because you will find that as you've you know just pointed out those populations who are marginalized in some way or who are more um, more vulnerable than others they will suffer the greatest amount of loss or of um you know health impacts etc from a disaster and i think a lot of this is based on historical decision making um, that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago so if we take australia as an example um and we look at the indigenous population of Australia, then we can see that actually they are statistically more likely if they live in urban centres or if they live in um, areas that have um, you know high population levels, they are statistically more likely to be um, more impacted by a disaster than um, a non-indigenous um, resident. 
And this is because the way that these decisions have been taken over hundreds of years, it may well be that the indigenous population were given land that was more at risk of uh, flooding, for example, or more at risk of forest fires because the land was deemed uh, less valuable. Um, it was cheaper to build on. So they were able to you know, be housed in a way that was uh, less expensive for the state. Um, there are lots of reasons as to why um, disasters exacerbate vulnerability. And I think particularly if we're looking at um, uh, marginalized groups, and, and, and that tends to be kind of my area of focus in my own research, that's why. It's because of these historical decisions that have been taken by people uh, by people in positions of power um, that then mean, you know, 100, 200 years later, we're then having to deal with these impacts um, uh, you know, on 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 these communities that are uh, most vulnerable. And it's interesting when I studied this at university in my master's degree in disaster risk reduction, it was often something that you talk about maybe developing countries and think that oh yeah. no, in Australia there's no such thing as this, or in the United States or mm-hmm. or the UK. Um, we don't have the same level of vulnerability, but realistically, that that notion that people are kind of pushed to the cheaper land exists everywhere in the world, mm-hmm. and that's that's something a real challenge for us all to consider um, in how we how we manage the challenges and the social issues around disasters. Um, speaking Absolutely. more, I mean, sorry, I, ju- I just yeah, I just wanted to reiterate what you're saying. I think it's a, it's the perfect point. I mean, you know, you only need to look at New Orleans and you need to look at Hurricane Katrina to understand that you know the US the 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 richest country on the planet, the most powerful country on the planet, has these very, very extreme levels of vulnerability. You know, you have you have people who, you know, are very rich and they have, you know, very low levels of vulnerability. And then you have, um, you know, Hurricane Katrina really exacerbated and really kind of highlighted and even, you know, Superstorm Sandy. So these big events that happen really start to um, highlight the, the risk disparity between these two groups um, and Hurricane Katrina, you know, it's, it, there's been numerous studies done since that shown that African-Americans were much more likely to die and be injured and be economically disadvantaged because of this event than their Caucasian um, counterparts. So absolutely, I think, you know, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a kind of a global South or global North country in terms of its economic development. These these disparities between um, vulnerability and risk exist everywhere in the world. And I love that point because I think it's a conversation where sometimes people feel helpless um, in the disaster risk reduction space, especially in that non-structural space. Um, There's a lot we can be doing in the structural space around land use planning, um, policy decisions, but it also just goes to show how important the non-structural side of this this solution is. We need to be engaging with people. We need to be bringing um, these people's situations forward into that policy space so we can start making holistic policies that start to address the issue um, at the root cause rather than putting Band-Aids on it. So I just think that's a great comment from both of you guys and it's something that I'm hoping our listeners are going to take away from this discussion because I know a lot of our listeners sit in that government space um, and go, well, I just do land use planning or I just engage with communities, but it's about how we all work together to address this situation. And I think vulnerability, that perception is often created by the media as well. And one thing I've seen recently is uh, images of women and females and girls appearing helpless and struggling um, following a disaster and the impact of a particular event. 
but we know that females play a particularly important role in disasters and make a significant contribution, whether it's part of the response or contributing to um, local knowledge or their experience. So Kevin, what do you see as the key challenges? I know you've done a lot of work in the gender space. Um, the key challenges with the way these types of images and stories are portrayed. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. A, a, a lot of, you know, and, and it, it kind of goes back to my my earlier comments around mainstream media and kind of the messaging behind why disasters aren't natural. And this ties into that. You know, if you look at um, the 2004 Asian tsunami, for example, or Indian Ocean tsunami, um, the number of pictures that came kind of to, to the Western world, sorry, I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see, but I'm <laughs> in most comments. Um, the, the, the number of images that came through from kind of press association and, and, and other news desks showed, you know, women and girls kind of sitting helplessly waiting for people to come in and help them. Um, particularly this kind of this, this, this notion of Western um, help arriving, you know, this kind of white saviour complex um, was very prominent in, in, in that particular disaster and actually in, in many disasters since. Um, and I think the media does have a, a large part to play in that. Um, it tends to be that uh, the, the stories that kind of go against that narrative don't necessarily sit well with their readership or their viewership. So, for example, with some of the kind of the, the more right wing channels over in the States, um, if you look at how um, African-Americans and people of color were portrayed in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina or Superstorm Sandy when they were kind of trying to get food and, and, and resources from, from supermarkets or from other kind of convenience stores, it was labeled as looting. Whereas if that had been a white crowd or a white, you know, um, part of the community trying to do the same thing, it would have been painted or it has been painted in different examples of people trying to survive, you know, trying to eat, um, trying to have enough to be able to, you know, manage day to day. So it's a very, it's a very kind of uh, complex narrative that, that, that um, the media portray and it fits very, very nicely with their own specific uh, kind of readership or viewership or listenership, whatever medium you're, you're talking about. And I think the challenge there is to actually try to show the other side of the coin. Um, you know, news agencies should be impartial. They should be showing the news as opposed to trying to um, some somehow frame that to meet their own kind of um, you know their own political ideology, etc. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't happen. But that would be the way that we can overcome that. We can deal with that challenge. Would be actually showing the flip side of that. And I think you know if you look at the the kind of the Black Lives Matter movement that's that's been happening for years, years has gathered over the past couple of months, you start to see ever ever so slowly, and I'm not suggesting that this is um, nearly enough, but you start to see that there are some news organizations who are actually taking a step back and saying, okay, how can we portray this in a, in a, in a more fair and balanced light? Um, so hopefully, you know, that might be a, a sign of things to come. This is a really engaging conversation. I love it. And it's a topic that Andrew and I are quite passionate about. And we've probably got a lot of listeners sitting out there with their hands in the air going, what do I do and and how do I actually get involved? Um, so what can emergency management agencies, government, uh, civil society, what can we do to combat these issues or start these conversations firstly? And secondly, what do the leaders of tomorrow need to think about today 
to help break this never-ending cycle of disadvantaged communities? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're both massive questions and we could probably have the entire podcast based on each one of them. Um, I think... Um, <laughs> So, so if we just look at kind of what what is it that emergency management agencies can do today um, or tomorrow, then I think there's, you know, that the, there are so many issues and so many historical issues that have led to us being in this position where we are currently that it's almost impossible to fix straight away. It's going to take generations of. Um, time and resource and education and involvement to really get to a point where marginalized groups are treated in a way that's um, befitting to their knowledge, their expertise, their ability to step in and lead, um, you know, really try to understand what it is that, that that's happening. Um, but I think maybe kind of the, the most simple um, first step we can take is just inclusion actually so so i always use the example so i mean i'm not sure about you guys but when i've been in these kind of emergency management um, meetings it tends to be by and large white middle class middle-aged men sitting around a desk making decisions that are going to impact the whole of the community that they're serving and that's fine obviously that's the way the system is it needs to change but that's that's what we've got but my my arguments always well how am i uh, you know a, a, a white male who lives in a in a western country who's you know relatively um priv- well very privileged i've had you know had the opportunity to go to university build my education etc how am i supposed to understand what it's like for a woman of color uh who has a disability how am I, with my mindset, supposed to understand what needs and challenges she has in the aftermath of a disaster or before a disaster, and how can we help her best? And the way we can do that is by including these these particular groups within this decision-making process. So the organization I, I um, run is called DRI Dynamics, and it is about facilitating those, those discussions. So bringing in marginalized groups who traditionally wouldn't have a seat at the table and actually listening to them and actually using their expertise, using their knowledge, using their capacity to improve DRR processes um, and, and hopefully overall make, um, make the, you know, the kind of the, the mainstream um, disastrous reduction um, process uh, better uh, and more effective. And I think that's probably one of the, the kind of the, the easiest, but also the most vital steps that we um, as emergency management and disaster practitioners can, can do. And then in terms of the the people of tomorrow, I think it's a kind of a continuation of that. It's about trying to, in universities and college and and kind of, you know, building up your own career, trying to understand that you won't have the answer for everything. And actually you are going to need to go out to the community. You are going to need to explore um, and invest in community engagement. You're going to need to understand that you, you, personally um have have you know no understanding of what what it's like to be you know in another um socioeconomic group or in another um race or you know there, there are lots of different things that come together um that that really need to be included within these discussions to make sure that um you know the the, the emergency management practitioners of tomorrow are able to to build on you know what what's happened so far um and really try to make that that policy as effective as possible 
Yeah, I think it's about taking that next step. And I think a lot of our agencies now are at that sort of point where we continue to do the same thing over and over again and nothing continues to change. And it's about looking towards the future and saying, mm. well, that's what the future holds for us. We need to make some sort of change now. Otherwise, nothing will happen and we'll remain this way forever, um, yeah. which is which is frustrating. Um mm. And in Australia, we're coming up to almost 12 months where disasters have been the top story in the media. It's been constant bushfires, flooding, and now coronavirus. And I think a lot of people are kind of asking if life will ever return to how it was before or whether this is some sort of new normal we're in. What do you see as a future of disaster risk reduction? And how do you think society will change with an increase in disaster events? And we're seeing that everywhere, I guess, across the world. How do you see our typically linear approach to preparedness, response, and recovery, and how do you see that changing as a result of COVID nineteen? So, so I mean, in in terms of kind of the, the future of DRR disaster risk reduction, I, and this is probably where I'm going to be a bit cynical. Actually, I'm you know I'm, I'm probably wearing a cynical hat today. Maybe it's because it's early Monday morning in the UK at the moment while we're recording this. But um, I think. Uh, not much is going to change if I'm being totally honest. I mean, I've worked in this sector for about 13 years now, just over 13 years. Um, and you know, 13 years isn't a long time as you know, uh, it's not that long in terms of trying to, you know, change a global system, but the conversations that we're having within the DRR community, I feel anyway, haven't changed as much as I would have expected for, for a 13 year period uh, of time. We're still talking about build back better. We're still talking about community engagement. Like these things are kind of emerging ideas when actually there are, there are countless examples out there of these, of these policies being put in place and being very successful as well. So, you know, it, 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 it feels like we're almost moving at a, a very too slow pace to, to kind of keep up with the with the changing risk landscape that we're facing as a as a species, um, I think climate change is probably going to be the biggest driver of all of this, and I'm sure you know that's that's obvious to everyone listening. Um, I think what's going to happen is we're going to start seeing much more kind of severe and frequent um, incidents and um, events happening, um, and I think over time that's going to somehow. Um, change the kind of the political landscape um, and make it much more um, kind of palatable to be able to spend the money that's required to um, kind of counter these these risks and these threats. Currently, uh, I don't think we're at that that stage yet, and I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon. But currently, you know, there, there's it, the the funding for disaster risk reduction and emergency management. As I, again, I'm sure many of your listeners will will attest to, um, you know, it's based really on kind of the political cycle, you know, an election happens, if there's a if there's a disaster event in between the election and the next election, you'll have some spending, but actually, you know, there, there's, there's a hesitance by politicians and by uh, political parties to invest too much money, because it may well be that that event doesn't happen again. And then there's that kind of uh, that feedback loop where you know people become critical of the amount of money that's being spent for something that might not happen for another 10 years so it's a, it's a kind of a political process um and i think um that's not going to change until climate change really starts to ramp up the incidents and the frequency in which we we're experiencing these disasters and i think once they become more common and more frequent um then hopefully 
uh, that will change the political spectrum to to kind of realize that actually we need to invest some decent money here to really be able to counter a lot of the threats. Let's hope that's the case. I think it's the the glacial pace that we're moving at in terms of changing the culture at the moment still seems like it hasn't really been impacted by bushfires or those major storms in the United States. We're still debating whether climate change is real. So it's quite um, challenging, I think, in some countries. And this is, I guess, yeah, the position we're in. Do you think coronavirus and, I guess, the whole world facing the same challenge will create increased collaboration and sharing maybe a bit of political pressure around the world to continue this process of working together to reduce disaster risk, or do you think it's not going to do anything? Um, again, my cynical hat is firmly in place at the moment. Um, I think that we've we've seen new, I mean, even over the past four or five months since coronavirus has really been kind of a, a big global issue, uh, we've seen governments and societies make decisions that lead me to believe that's not the case. I mean, you only need to look at the USA just recently stockpiled a particular drug that could help fight COVID. And that's been at the expense of any other country that wanted to have that um, that drug as well. And um, they've basically bought all the orders. And then we've also seen, you know, the UK, um, you know, the country where I'm, I'm based, refusing to work with the European Union um, on securing personal protective equipment, medical equipment, um, vaccine orders, etc. So we're, at the moment, the, the, the kind of the world, it seems to me anyway, is on, is on this kind of path of nationalism and isolationism. Um, countries are very reluctant to work together or if they are, if they do work together, it's kind of, the, the political response is us first, you later. Um, so I think uh, COVID probably isn't going to change that. Um, as, uh, you know, and, and I'm not kind of stating to be any kind of expert on geopolitical um, policy, um, but I do see trends emerge um, in terms of how it is that we've coped so far um, with the with the outbreak. Um, and I, you know, there are a couple of like bright spots as well. You know, the, the rest of the European Union. Um, are working very well together. You know, they're really collaborating, investing lots of money in the recovery, and and and, and working as as a team. Um, and then you know, you've got examples of Caribbean um, countries, kind of small island nations, working very well to try and pool their resources to be able to counter the impacts of COVID better. And the same in the South Pacific as well. So there are some bright spots, but unfortunately, it's the kind of the major economies that really are uh, letting the team down at the moment. I think. So again, I guess it's those who can and those who have the resource and the ability. Yeah. Are keeping it to themselves and those who are socially vulnerable, generally speaking, um, are going to be worse yeah. off out of this. Um, how yeah. depressing. How depressing. Maybe Josh got a more positive question to ask. <laughs> You've do- definitely brought us to a low there, Andrew. Yes. Uh, but, but I guess what I would like to do is um, just probably pull us back a little bit down to more the local level. We've been talking a lot about the political side of, um, of disasters and the global nature of what we're dealing with. But you know, it was a term I heard only last week is that we shouldn't be focusing on revolutionary change. We should be focusing on small changes that will then lead to a revolutionary shift um, in what we're doing. And I think that's what we've got to focus on in, in, in the people and the listeners. And for us all here is that's what we've got to focus on. What are those small steps we can take every day to change that picture 10 to 15 years down the track? So with that in mind, Kevin, um, for our listeners, what are some really small practical steps that people could take day to day in their workplace, in their life, um, to start to change this conversation, to start to change this narrative? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really, that's that's nicely spun there to make it a bit more positive. (laughs) (laughs) I try. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Um, I mean, there's there's so much stuff. I mean, and this is the thing, like, you know, as I said, you know, it's a Monday morning. Maybe this is kind of impacting my frame of mind. Um, There are some good things happening out there. I'm not suggesting that we're in a kind of complete doom and gloom situation. We're not. You know, there are lots of technological advances, you know, um, medical advances. There are all these different things that are really helping us be better prepared for disasters. Um, From a kind of an individual or, or kind of community standpoint, I think, uh, and and if we look at kind of the No Natural Disasters campaign and how it is that we have kind of tried to broach that to try and change terminology within the sector, I think there are probably four four main steps. <clears throat> One I think is positivity, and I, I say that knowing that I've just I've just <laughs> talked you know cynical for the past ten minutes, but I think positivity is absolutely key. I think you know people engage better with positive messages. Um, you know it's, it's been studied in, in numerous fields around worlds that people respond better to a, a positive argument than one of a negative. Um, so I think, um, you know, trying to shift people away from the terminology of, of natural disaster, it's really key that you try to use the positives there. So, you know, it's easier to explain a disaster if you're not having to say natural disaster. You know, if you just say disaster, it's, it's fine. And, you know, people understand what a disaster is. Um it also opens up an engagement about the kind of the historical um, uh, inequality that's really kind of um, f- formed the core of, uh, of disaster management up until now. And I think that's a positive in itself, you know, just have that conversation and actually try to start to unpick those things. Um, the next would be kind of peer-to-peer learning. You know, you know your workplace better than anyone else. You know the types of things that you do, the the types of um, areas that you work in. You understand how the message itself or how kind of the, the policy fits within your place of work. So use your own knowledge of your company to try and frame the no natural disasters message within your particular local context. So it may well be that you work for a, you know, a fire brigade um, or a fire kind of emergency service. Well, how is it that you can tailor the natural disasters message to, to suit the people who, who you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis? So I think that kind of peer-to-peer learning um, is absolutely vital. And I think, you know, it, it, it's better than a top-down approach always. I think if you try to work kind of horizontally uh, across an organization as opposed to top-down, the message is always much clearer. And um, thirdly, it would be evidence. So provide evidence and give the evidence that you have um, as to why we shouldn't be using natural to describe disasters. And there's a really excellent page on on the No Natural Disasters website that I'm sure you guys will link to that provides the evidence, the, the peer reviewed journals, reports, etc. Provides lots of data to back up the argument. Um, and then it's about being proactive. So um, I worked in an organisation last year that was really kind of proactive about community learning and about engaging with members of other teams and they used to have this thing called um lunch and learn on a thursday you'd take you know sandwiches into the conference room and someone would give a presentation or you'd have an external speaker come in and and, and present an idea or kind of a, a policy that they would like to share and i think that's a really good idea you're being proactive you know you're trying to change the way the system works and you're trying to change the terminology that's that's being used and to do that you are going to need to be proactive you know it's going to take a little bit of work but actually in the long term 
um, I think we'll be in a better place for it. I just really think that, you know, that, that comment around, um, around the change, I really do believe in that. And I really do think that, um, Kevin, this campaign that you guys, uh, your team has started, I really think that this is one of the first steps. Um, and, and I just want to encourage our listeners. It may seem like a small step, but many, 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 many small steps and many conversations lead to a giant leap. And, and this is where I really think we need to start. So I was going to say, before we, before we finish up today, Kevin, how do people get involved? If they want to get involved in the hashtag No Natural Disasters campaign, where do they go and, and how do they get involved? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really easy. Uh, I mean, if you have a Twitter account, um, you can tweet with just using the hashtag No Natural Disasters and then that will be, you know, automatically picked up by our community so then people will also you know kind of automatically follow that hashtag so then you'll start to be engaged um and if you want to kind of go a bit further um we've just recently launched a report looking at how no natural disasters can be um kind of advocated for in the workplace and we've just launched a report that gives uh, a number of kind of concrete um steps that you can take as an individual as a, as a community or a workplace to be able to change that discourse um and that's available on the website um and there's also kind of a lot of other kind of tools and, and um, bits of information on the website. There are logos that you can you can post on Twitter or on Facebook or, you know, whatever online medium you use. Um, there are going to be PowerPoint presentations that are going to and um, that's going to be launched in September. That's really kind of trying to, um, you know, encourage that that peer to peer learning, as I, as I uh, mentioned earlier. So, you know, there are lots of things that you can do. Some of them are more intense. Others are as simple as sending out a tweet with a logo, just saying no natural disasters, and then people will pick up on that. And your followers will then want to question that. And kind of that, that spreads the message organically. Um, so, it's, you know, it depends how, how depth you want to get involved. And we have, uh, we have resources for all levels. It's a topic we need to talk more about and certainly spread the word. And as Kevin mentioned, you can get involved by sharing content on social media and visiting nonaturaldisasters.com for more resources. All the links are up on our blog at disasterbros.com. Thanks for chatting with us, Kevin, today on Me, Myself and Disaster and good luck with the campaign. Thank you. Thank you both. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, um, to speaking with you again soon. What an engaging conversation, Andrew, and it certainly sounds like there's some barriers ahead of our listeners and the disaster risk reduction landscape. The really interesting part of this conversation for me today is understanding everyone's perspective. Policy makers at the table need to put themselves in the shoes and the skin of those that they're making decisions for. Yeah, I, I found it really interesting. I think what um, what stuck with me most was the level of challenge we're facing. And Kevin gave a quite a almost depressing um, bit of a view of the world at the end there. But I think there are some real positives as he mentioned. Um, disasters, while they bring tragedy and and difficult times, they also bring change. And perhaps coronavirus and the bushfires and everything else we've seen lately, Hurricane Katrina, every other storm we've had in the world leads to some change. And let's hope that this makes some change in the future. We can get away from calling it natural disasters, realise what it really is and start looking at those things around social change and vulnerability and really make some good changes in the world. That's what, If we can do a small part of that and everyone can contribute something small to that, we've made some progress. Well, that's it for another week. Join us next time for more disaster stories. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com.